0: Chapter Three, Part Two, of the Influence of Sea Power upon History, sixteen sixty to seventeen eighty three, by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two, another chapter in the history of maritime coalitions was closed on the twenty first of august sixteen seventy three by the battle of the texel in it as in others were amply justified the words with which a modern french naval officer has stamped them united by momentary political interests but at bottom divided to the verge of hatred never following the same path in council or in action they have never produced good results or at least results proportioned to the efforts of the powers allied against a common enemy the navies of france spain and holland seem at several distinct times to have joined only to make more complete the triumph of the british arms when to this well ascertained tendency of coalitions is added the equally well-known jealousy of every country over the increasing power of a neighbor and the consequent unwillingness to see such increase obtained by crushing another member of the family of nations an approach is made to the measure of naval strength required by a state it is not necessary to be able to meet all others combined as some englishmen have seemed to think it is necessary only to be able to meet the strongest on favourable terms sure that the others will not join in destroying a factor in the political equilibrium even if they hold aloof england and spain were allies in toulon in seventeen ninety three when the excesses of revolutionary france seemed to threaten the social order of europe but the spanish admiral told the english flatly that the ruin of the french navy a large part of which was there in their hands could not fail to be injurious to the interests of spain and a part of the french ships was saved by his conduct which has been justly characterized as not only full of firmness but also as dictated by the highest political reason the battle of the texel closing the long series of wars in which the dutch and english contended on equal terms for the mastery of the seas saw the dutch navy in its highest efficiency and its greatest ornament de ruyter at the summit of his glory long since old in years for he was now sixty-six he had lost none of his martial vigor his attack was as furious as eight years before and his judgment apparently had ripened rapidly through the experience of the last war for there is far more evidence of plan and military insight than before to him under the government of the great pensionary de witt with whom he was in close sympathy the increase of discipline and sound military tone now apparent in the dutch navy must have been largely due he went to this final strife of the two great sea peoples in the fulness of his own genius with an admirably tempered instrument in his hands and with the glorious disadvantage of numbers to save his country the mission was fulfilled not by courage alone but by courage forethought and skill the attack at the texel was in its general lines the same as that at trafalgar the enemy's van being neglected to fall on the centre and rear and as at trafalgar the van by failing to do its duty more than justified the conception but as the odds against de ruyter were greater than those against nelson so was his success less the part played by Bankert at Sol Bay was essentially the same as that of nelson at st vincent when he threw himself across the path of the spanish division with his single ship but nelson took his course without orders from jervis while banquet was carrying out ruyter's plan once more still himself in his bearing but under sadly altered surroundings will this simple and heroic man come before us and here in contrast with his glory seems a proper place to insert a little description by the comte de Guiche of his bearing in the four days fight which brings out at once the homely and the heroic sides of his character i never saw him during those last three days other than even-tempered and when victory was assured saying always it was the good god that gives it to us amid the disorders of the fleet and the appearance of loss he seemed to be moved only by the misfortune to his country but always submissive to the will of god finally it may be said that he has something of the frankness and lack of polish of our patriarchs and to conclude what i have to say of him i will relate that the day after the victory i found him sweeping his own room and feeding his chickens nine days after the battle of the texel on the thirtieth of august sixteen seventy three a formal alliance was made between holland on the one hand and spain lorraine and the emperor of germany on the other and the french ambassador was dismissed from vienna louis almost immediately offered holland comparatively moderate terms but the united provinces with their new allies by their sides and with their backs borne firmly upon the sea which had favored and supported them set their face steadily against him in england the clamour of the people and parliament became louder the protestant feeling and the old enmity to france were daily growing as was the national distrust of the king charles though he had himself lost none of his hatred of the republic had to give way louis seeing the gathering storm made up his mind by the council of turenne to withdraw from his dangerously advanced position by evacuating holland and to try to make peace with the provinces separately while continuing the war with the house of austria in spain and germany thus he returned to richelieu's policy and holland was saved february nineteenth sixteen seventy four peace was signed between england and the provinces the latter recognized the absolute supremacy of the english flag from cape finisterre in spain to norway and paid a war indemnity the withdrawal of england which remained neutral during the remaining four years of the war necessarily made it less maritime the king of france did not think his navy either in numbers or efficiency able to contend alone with that of holland he therefore withdrew it from the ocean and confined his sea enterprises to the mediterranean with one or two half privateering expeditions to the west indies the united provinces for their part being freed from danger on the side of the sea and not having except for a short time any serious idea of operating against the french coast diminished their own fleets the war became more and more continental and drew in more and more the other powers of europe gradually the german states cast their lot with austria and on may twenty eighth sixteen seventy four the diet proclaimed war against france the great work of french policy in the last generations was undone austria had resumed her supremacy in germany and holland had not been destroyed on the baltic denmark seeing sweden inclining toward france hastened to make common cause with the german empire sending fifteen thousand troops there remained in germany only bavaria hanover and wurtemberg faithful still to their french alliance the land war had thus drawn in nearly all the powers of europe and from the nature of the case the principal theatre of the conflict was beyond the eastern boundary of france toward the rhine and in the spanish netherlands but while this was raging a maritime episode was introduced by the fact of denmark and sweden being engaged on opposite sides of this it will not be necessary to speak beyond mentioning that the dutch sent a squadron under tromp to join the danes and that the united fleets won a great victory over the swedes in sixteen seventy six taking from them ten ships it is therefore evident that the sea superiority of holland detracted greatly from sweden's value as an ally to louis the fourteenth Another maritime strife arose in the Mediterranean by the revolt of the Sicilians against the Spanish rule. The help, they asked, from France was granted as a diversion against Spain, but the Sicilian enterprise never became more than a side issue. Its naval interest springs from bringing Ruyter once more on the scene, and that as the antagonist of Duquesne, the equal, and by some thought even the superior of Tourville whose name has always stood far above all others in the french navy of that day messina revolted in july sixteen seventy four and the french king at once took it under his protection the spanish navy throughout seems to have behaved badly certainly inefficiently and early in sixteen seventy five the french were safely established in the city during the year their naval power in the mediterranean was much increased and spain unable to defend the island herself applied to the united provinces for a fleet the expenses of which she would bear the provinces fatigued by the war involved in debt suffering cruelly in their commerce exhausted by the necessity of paying the emperor and all the german princes could no longer fit out the enormous fleets which they had once opposed to france and england they however hearkened to spain and sent de ruyter with a squadron of only eighteen ships and four fireships the admiral who had noted the growth of the french navy said the force was too small and departed oppressed in spirit but with the calm resignation which was habitual to him he reached cadiz in september and in the meantime the french had further strengthened themselves by the capture of augusta a port commanding the southeast of sicily de ruyter was again delayed by the spanish government and did not reach the north coast of the island until the end of december when head winds kept him from entering the straits of messina he cruised between messina and the lapari islands in a position to intercept the french fleet convoying troops and supplies which was expected under duquesne on the seventh of january sixteen seventy six the french came in sight twenty ships-of-the-line and six fire-ships the dutch had but nineteen ships one of which was a spaniard and four fire-ships and it must be remembered that although there is no detailed account of the dutch ships in this action they were as a rule inferior to those of england and yet more to those of france the first day was spent in manoeuvring the dutch having the weather-gage but during that night which was squally and drove the spanish galleys accompanying the dutch to take refuge under lipari the wind shifted and coming out at west-southwest gave the french the weather-gage and the power to attack duquesne resolved to use it and sending the convoy ahead formed his line on the starboard tack standing south the dutch did the same and waited for him an emotion of surprise must be felt at seeing the great dutch admiral surrender the choice of attack on the seventh at daybreak of that day he saw the enemy and steered for him at three p m a french account says he hauled his wind on the same tack as themselves but out of cannon shot to windward how account for the seeming reluctance of the man who three years before had made the desperate attacks of Solbay and the texel his reasons have not been handed down it may be that the defensive advantages of the lee gage had been recognized by this thoughtful seaman especially when preparing to meet with inferior forces an enemy of impetuous gallantry and imperfect seamanship if any such ideas did influence him they were justified by the result the battle of stromboli presents a partial anticipation of the tactics of the french and english a hundred years later but in this case it is the french who seek the weather-gauge and attack with fury while the dutch take the defensive the results were very much such as clerk pointed out to the english in his celebrated work on naval tactics the accounts here followed being entirely French the two fleets being drawn up in line of battle on the starboard tack heading south as has been said de ruyter awaited the attack which he had refused to make being between the french and their port he felt they must fight at nine a m the french line kept away altogether and ran down obliquely upon the dutch a manoeuvre difficult to be performed with accuracy and during which the assailant receives his enemy's fire at disadvantage in doing this two ships in the french van were seriously disabled m de la fayette in the prudente began the action but having rashly thrown himself into the midst of the enemy's van he was dismantled and forced to haul off confusion ensued in the french line from the difficult character of the manoeuvre vice-admiral de prouilly commanding the van in keeping away took too little room so that in coming to the wind again the ships in too close order lapped and interfered with one another's fire the absence of m de la fayette from the line threw the parfait into peril attacked by two ships she lost her main top mast and had also to haul off for repairs again the french came into action in succession instead of altogether a usual and almost inevitable result of the manoeuvre in question in the midst of a terrible cannonade that is after part of his ships were engaged duquesne commanding the centre took post on the beam of ruyter's division the french rear came into action still later after the centre Langeron and bethune commanding leading ships of the french centre are crushed by superior forces how can this be seeing the french had the more ships it was because as the narrative tells us the french had not yet repaired the disorder of the first movement however all at last got into action and duquesne gradually restored order the dutch engaged all along the line resisted everywhere and there was not one of their ships which was not closely engaged more cannot be said for the admiral and captains of the inferior fleet the remaining part of the fight is not very clearly related ruyter is said to have given way continually with his two leading divisions but whether this was a confession of weakness or a tactical move does not appear the rear was separated in permitting which either ruyter or the immediate commander was at fault but the attempts made by the french to surround and isolate it failed probably because of damaged spars for one french ship did pass entirely around the separated division the action ended at four thirty p m except in the rear and the spanish galleys shortly after came up and towed the disabled dutch ships away their escape shows how injured the french must have been the positions are intended to show the dutch rear far separated and the disorder in which a fleet action under sail necessarily ended from loss or spars those who are familiar with clerks work on naval tactics published about seventeen eighty will recognize in this account of the battle of stromboli all the features to which he called the attention of english seamen in his thesis on the methods of action employed by them and their adversaries in and before his time clerk's thesis started from the postulate that english seamen and officers were superior in skill or spirit or both to the french and their ships on the whole as fast that they were conscious of this superiority and therefore eager to attack while the french equally conscious of inferiority or for other reasons were averse to decisive engagements with these dispositions the latter feeling they could rely on a blindly furious attack by the english had evolved a crafty plan by which while seeming to fight they really avoided doing so and at the same time did the enemy much harm this plan was to take the lee gage the characteristic of which as has before been pointed out is that it is a defensive position and to await attack the english error according to clerk upon which the french had learned by experience that they could always count was in drawing up their line parallel to the enemy or nearly so and then keeping away altogether to attack ship for ship each its opposite in the hostile line by standing down in this manner the assailant lost the use of most of his artillery while exposed to the full fire of his opponent and invariably came up in confusion because the order of attack was one difficult to maintain at any time and much more so in the smoke under fire with torn sails and falling masts this was precisely the attack made by duquesne at stromboli and it there had precisely the consequences clerk points out confusion in the line the van arriving first and getting the brunt of the fire of the defence Disabled ships in the van causing confusion in the rear etc clerk further asserts and he seems to be right that as the action grew warm the french by running off to leeward in their turn led the english to repeat the same mode of attack and so we find at stromboli ruyter giving ground in the same way though his motive does not appear clerk also points out that a necessary corollary of the lee gage assumed for tactical reasons is to aim at the assailant's spars his motive power so that his attack cannot be pushed farther than the defendant chooses and at stromboli the crippled condition of the french is evident for after ruyte had fallen to leeward and could no longer help his separated rear it was practically unmolested by the french although none of these had been sunk while therefore there cannot with certainty be attributed to ruyter the deliberate choice of the lee-gage for which there was as yet no precedent it is evident that he reaped all its benefits and that the character of the french officers of his day inexperienced as seamen and of impetuous valour offered just the conditions that gave most advantage to an inferior force standing on the defensive the qualities and characteristics of the enemy are among the principal factors which a man of genius considers and it was to this as much as to any other one trait that nelson owed his dazzling successes on the other hand the french admiral attacked in a wholly unscientific manner ship against ship without an attempt to concentrate on a part of the enemy or even trying to keep him in play until the french squadron of eight ships-of-the-line in messina near by could join such tactics cannot be named beside that of solbey or the texel but as duquesne was the best french officer of the century with the possible exception of tourville this battle has a value of its own in the history of tactics and may by no means be omitted the standing of the commander-in-chief is the warrant that it marks the highest point to which french naval tactics has as yet attained before quitting this discussion it may be noted that the remedy clerk proposed was to attack the rear ships of the enemy's line and preferably to leeward the remainder of the fleet must then either abandon them or stand down for a general action which according to his postulate was all that the english seamen desired after the fight de ruyter sailed to palermo one of his ships sinking on the way duquesne was joined outside messina by the french division that had been lying there the remaining incidents of the sicilian war are unimportant to the general subject on the twenty second of april de ruyter and duquesne met again off augusta duquesne had twenty-nine ships the allied spaniards and dutch twenty-seven of which ten were spanish unfortunately the spaniard commanded in chief and took the centre of the line with the ships of his country contrary to the advice of Ruyter, who knowing how inefficient his allies were wished to scatter them through the line and so support them better Ruyter himself took the van and the allies having the wind attacked but the spanish centre kept at long cannon range leaving the brunt of the battle to fall on the dutch van the rear following the commander-in-chief's motions was also but slightly engaged in this sorrowful yet still glorious fulfilment of hopeless duty de ruyter who never before in his long career had been struck by an enemy's shot received a mortal wound he died a week later at syracuse and with him passed away the last hope of resistance on the sea a month later the spanish and dutch fleets were attacked at anchor at palermo and many of them destroyed while a division sent from holland to reinforce the mediterranean fleet was met by a french squadron in the straits of gibraltar and forced to take refuge in cadiz the sicilian enterprise continued to be only a diversion and the slight importance attached to it shows clearly how entirely Louis the fourteenth was bent on the continental war how differently would the value of sicily have impressed him had his eyes been fixed on egypt and extension by sea as the years passed the temper of the english people became more and more excited against france the trade rivalries with holland seemed to fall into the shade and it became likely that england which had entered the war as the ally of louis would before it closed take up arms against him in addition to other causes of jealousy she saw the french navy increase to a number superior to her own charles for a while resisted the pressure of parliament but in january 1678 a treaty of alliance offensive and defensive was made between the two sea countries the king recalled the english troops which until now had been serving as part of the french army and when parliament opened again in february asked for money to equip ninety ships and thirty thousand soldiers louis who was expecting this result at once ordered the evacuation of sicily he did not fear england by land but on the sea he could not yet hold his own against the union of the two sea powers at the same time he redoubled his attacks on the spanish netherlands as long as there was a hope of keeping the ships of england out of the fight he had avoided touching the susceptibilities of the english people on the subject of the belgian sea coast but now that they could no longer be conciliated he thought best to terrify holland by the sharpness of his attack in the quarter where she dreaded him most the united provinces were in truth the mainspring of the coalition though among the smallest in extent of the countries arrayed against louis they were strongest in the character and purpose of their ruler the prince of orange and in the wealth which while supporting the armies of the confederates also kept the poor and greedy german princes faithful to their alliance almost alone by dint of mighty sea power by commercial and maritime mobility they bore the burden of the war and though they staggered and complained they still bore it as in later centuries england so at the time we are now speaking of holland the great sea power supported the war against the ambition of france but her sufferings were great her commerce preyed upon by french privateers lost heavily and there was added an immense indirect loss in the transfer of the carrying trade between foreign countries which had contributed so much to the prosperity of the dutch when the flag of england became neutral this rich business went to her ships which crossed the seas the more securely because of the eager desire of louis to conciliate the english nation this desire led him also to make very large concessions to english exigencies in the matter of commercial treaties undoing much of the work of protection upon which colbert sought to nourish the yet feeble growth of french sea power these sops however only stayed for a moment the passions which were driving england it was not self-interest but stronger motives which impelled her to a break with france still less was it to the interests of holland to prolong the war after louis showed a wish for peace a continental war could at best be but a necessary evil and source of weakness to her the money she spent on her own and the allied armies was lost to her navy and the sources of her prosperity on the sea were being exhausted how far the prince of orange was justified by the aims of louis the fourteenth in that unyielding attitude of opposition toward him which he always maintained may be uncertain and there is here no need to decide the question but there can be no doubt that the strife sacrificed the sea power of holland through sheer exhaustion and with it destroyed her position among the nations of the world situated between france and england says a historian of holland by one or other of them were the united provinces after they had achieved their independence of spain constantly engaged in wars which exhausted their finances annihilated their navy and caused the rapid decline of their trade manufactures and commerce and thus a peace-loving nation found herself crushed by the weight of unprovoked and long-continued hostilities often too the friendship of england was scarcely less harmful to holland than her enmity as one increased and the other lessened it became the alliance of the giant and the dwarf hitherto we have seen holland the open enemy or hardy rival of england henceforward she appears as an ally in both cases a sufferer from her smaller size weaker numbers and less favoured situation the exhaustion of the united provinces and the clamour of their merchants and peace party on the one hand aided on the other by the sufferings of france the embarrassment of her finances and the threatened addition of england's navy to her already numerous enemies inclined to peace the two principal parties to this long war louis had long been willing to make peace with holland alone but the states had been withheld at first by fidelity to those who had joined them in their hour of trouble and latterly by the firm purpose of william of orange difficulties were gradually smoothed away and the peace of nimeguen between the united provinces and france was signed august eleventh sixteen seventy eight the other powers shortly afterward acceded to it the principal sufferer as was natural was the overgrown but feeble monarchy whose centre was spain which gave up to france franche comte and a number of fortified towns in the spanish netherlands thus extending the boundaries of france to the east and northeast holland for whose destruction louis began the war lost not a foot of ground in europe and beyond the seas only her colonies on the west coast of africa and in guiana she owed her safety at first and the final successful issue to her sea power that delivered her in the hour of extreme danger and enabled her afterward to keep alive the general war it may be said to have been one of the chief factors and inferior to no other one singly in determining the event of the great war which was formerly closed at Nimeguen. the effort none the less sapped her strength and being followed by many years of similar strain broke her down but what was the effect upon the vastly greater state the extreme ambition of whose king was the principal cause of the exhausting wars of this time among the many activities which illustrated the brilliant opening of the reign of the then youthful king of france none was so important none so intelligently directed as those of colbert who aimed first at restoring the finances from the confusion into which they had fallen and then at establishing them upon a firm foundation of national wealth this wealth at that time utterly beneath the possibilities of france was to be developed on the lines of production encouraged trade stimulated to healthful activity a large merchant shipping a great navy and colonial extension some of these are sources others the actual constituents of sea power which indeed may be said in a seaboard nation to be the invariable accompaniment if it be not the chief source of its strength for nearly twelve years all went well the development of the greatness of france in all these directions went forward rapidly if not in all with equal strides and the king's revenues increased by bounds then came the hour in which he had to decide whether the exertions which his ambition naturally perhaps properly prompted should take the direction which while imposing great efforts did nothing to sustain but rather hindered the natural activities of his people and broke down commerce by making control of the sea uncertain or whether he should launch out in pursuits which while involving expense would keep peace on his borders lead to the control of the sea and by the impulse given to trade and all upon which trade depends would bring in money nearly if not quite equal to that which the state spent this is not a fanciful picture by his attitude toward holland and its consequences louis gave the first impulse to england upon the path which realized to her within her own day the results which colbert and leibnitz had hoped for france he drove the dutch carrying trade into the ships of england allowed her to settle peacefully pennsylvania and carolina and to seize new york and new jersey and he sacrificed to gain her neutrality the growing commerce of france not all at once but very rapidly england pressed into the front place as a sea power and however great her sufferings and the sufferings of individual englishmen it remained true of her that even in war her prosperity was great doubtless france could not forget her continental position nor wholly keep free from continental wars but it may be believed that if she had chosen the path of sea power she might both have escaped many conflicts and borne those that were unavoidable with greater ease at the peace of nibiguen the injuries were not irreparable but the agricultural classes commerce manufactures and the colonies had alike been smitten by the war and the conditions of peace so advantageous to the territorial and military power of france were much less so to manufactures the protective tariffs having been lowered in favor of england and holland the two sea powers the merchant shipping was stricken and the splendid growth of the royal navy that excited the jealousy of england was like a tree without roots it soon withered away under the blast of war before finally quitting this war with holland a short notice of the comte d'estree to whom louis committed the charge of the french contingent of the allied fleet and who commanded it at solebay and the texel will throw some light upon the qualifications of the french naval officers of the day before experience had made seamen of many of them d'estray went to sea for the first time in sixteen sixty seven, being then a man of mature years but in sixteen seventy two we find him in the chief command of an important squadron having under him duquesne who was a seaman and had been so for nearly forty years in sixteen seventy seven Destray obtained from the king a body of eight ships which he undertook to maintain at his own expense upon the condition of receiving half the prizes made with this squadron he made an attack upon then dutch island of tobago with a recklessness which showed that no lack of courage prompted his equivocal conduct at the texel the next year he went out again and contrived to run the whole squadron ashore on the Aves islands the account given by the flag-captain of this transaction is amusing as well as instructive in his report he says the day that the squadron was lost the sun having been taken by the pilots the vice-admiral as usual had them put down the position in his cabin as i was entering to learn what was going on i met the third pilot Bourdieu, who was going out crying. I asked him what the matter was, and he answered. Because I find more drift than the other pilots, the admiral is threatening me and abusing me as usual. Yet I am only a poor lad who does the best he can. When I had entered the cabin, the admiral, who was very angry, said to me, That scoundrel of a Bourdaloue is always coming to me with some nonsense or other. I will drive him out of the ship. He makes us to be running a course. The devil knows where I don't as i did not know which was right says the captain of the ship rather naively i did not dare to say anything for fear of bringing down a like storm on my own head some hours after this scene which as the french officer from whom the extract is taken says appears now almost grotesque but which is only an exact portrayal of the sea manners of the day the whole squadron was lost on a group of rocks known as the aves islands such were the officers the flag-captain in another part of his report says the shipwreck resulted from the general line of conduct held by vice-admiral d'estray it was always the opinion of his servants or others than the proper officers of the ship which prevailed this manner of acting may be understood in the Comte D'Estres, who, without the necessary knowledge of a profession he had embraced so late, always had with him obscure counsellors in order to appropriate the opinions they gave him so as to blind the ship's company as to his capacity. d'Estre had been made Vice-Admiral two years after he first went aboard ship End of Chapter Three, Part Two.